This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith, and we are kicking off Season 10. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. And I'm wondering, what is on your plate today as we're getting this season started? Well, I'm just back after uh, taking a long three-day weekend here in the Midwest where we didn't get quite the snow dump that everyone on the East Coast did, but I hit the ski slopes with my family yesterday, and it was a lovely winter day. You got I'm of the belief that you got to embrace winter and just get out there, and we're big skaters and sledders and skiers. So I'm catching up from taking Friday off and enjoying a long weekend, but it's good to be back with you guys. It feels like it was too long of a break. So good to be back chatting with you. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. I was leading a workshop yesterday or gave a lecture, I should say, with um, su- substantive Q&A. So it felt like a workshop to me, which is always nice. And it was virtual, but hosted by the Portsiuncula Center for Prayer in Frankfurt, Illinois. And one of the attendees sent me a direct message on Zoom and said, I'm getting really nervous. I'm a big fan of the Francis Effect, and there hasn't been a new episode in a while. And so I just wrote back, stay tuned. This Wednesday, it's dropping. So um, I agree with you, Heidi. It does does feel like it's been a while. It's so good to see both of you. Yeah, we're rolling already well now into the spring semester, though it feels anything other than spring here in Indiana and uh, loving life, doing the best uh, we all can in this Omicron season. David, how are you? What's going on in Hyde Park? Well, things are good here in Hyde Park. And here on the show, in our first segment, we're going to do a big recap of all the stuff that's been going on in the last month and a half since you last heard from us. But just for today, I'm kicking off a week where I'm finishing up a a grant where I I had to help to write the grant proposal and help to administer the grant. And then today, the last day of the month, I'm finishing up the grant report for that. So the great cycle of financial life at university 
universities is turning and coming to an end. And I'm excited for the week because it's a week where I get to meet with students at various levels, not in person, but virtually. And we're a couple of weeks now into the semester, and I'm really excited for how things are going. And so it's that exciting part of the semester and the new part of a year where all of the possibilities are before us. So I'm excited for all of that moving forward. I'm looking forward to to what comes next. But on the show today, we're going to be, as I said, recapping what we've done over the past month and a half since you last heard from us. We're also going to be talking about recent anti-transgender legislation and policies at archdiocesan levels and how they're affecting people who identify as transgender. And then we're going to be talking about the legacy and life of Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, a Buddhist monk who was also a contemporary of Thomas Merton and several other spiritual figures. So all that's coming up on the show. Please stay tuned. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. The Francis Effect podcast officially turns 10 seasons old today. It's hard to believe that our seasonal count has reached double digits, but here we are. Our last episode of season nine and of calendar year 2021 dropped on December 15th, and a lot has happened since then. As a nation, we've marked the year anniversary of the Capitol insurrection and the first full year of the Biden administration. Since our last episode, the world has grappled with the highly transmissible Omicron variant of COVID-19, with some estimates suggesting that half of the global population will have been infected by the virus at the peak transmission of this variant. And now there's a growing threat of military force in Eastern Europe as Russia considers invading the Ukraine. We, the hosts of this podcast, also celebrated Christmas and New Year's in various locations with family and friends, with some of us traveling during the holiday season, and now we have the opportunity to catch up with one another and with you, our listeners. So let's begin with you, Dan. How was your break between podcast seasons, and what's new these days? Well, happy anniversary, David. Ten seasons. Very exciting. And I think we're now at least two full seasons, maybe more with, with Heidi. So happy anniversary to you as well. I had a great break, though it was peppered with issues like we all have, particularly as we get older. I was really fortunate after the semester ended in in the fall here in December to be able to spend some time with my family at uh, Christmas in, in upstate New York and then to visit some friends for New Year's, for the New Year's holiday. The little reference I made a moment ago to things being peppered is longtime listeners will know that probably my most consistent hobby is I'm a long distance runner. I love to run even in wintertime. But one thing I do not love to do is stretch. <laughs> and so just laziness on my part, I own that. I admit that. But as I, when I was younger, you could get away with a lot without having to stretch or, or do that kind of stuff. As I'm, I'm quickly approaching 40, I'm feeling that is no longer a luxury I enjoy. Long story short, I really did something to my hip and back in in mid-December. 
for many weeks. I've thrown my back out before, and sometimes it's running related. Sometimes it's just life. Tremendous pain, as anyone who's had back issues knows. Um, but what was unusual about this for me, this was a novel thing, was it took almost a month to heal from it. So it was a long time of not running. It was traveling, being on a plane to New York State with with the back injury was rough. I will say I'm better now and it's taken a lot of kind of rehab and work and I'm grateful to my chiropractor and and the practice here in South Bend. I'm very fortunate I go to a practice that also uh, provides chiropractic care for a lot of the Notre Dame sports teams. So if they can handle the football players, they can handle Dan Haran and they have. I've also uh, taken up, I guess you could call it a New Year's resolution. I don't really, I'm not, I don't subscribe to that because I think it's easy for us New Year's resolutionaries to give up very quickly. Um, but it's something that was inspired by the pain in the back and realizing I need to be more proactive, especially as I get older, if I want to keep running. And so I've taken up yoga, which is something that the last time I did was when I was in, in college a senior in college, the last yoga class was, I did the math 18 years ago. And so some kid was born at the time that I had my last yoga class. And that kid is likely in college now. So it's been a long time, but I have to say it's been really wonderful. It's been very helpful. And it's kept me honest about needing to stretch so that I injure myself further. So uh, I'm really happy about that. Christmas again was wonderful with my family and to be back in upstate New York. The new year is off to a good start here. David, how's your break, Ben, what's that been like? Well, so we did not travel over the Christmas holiday, but we did have time with family and that was lovely. But then the day after Christmas, my wife got a positive COVID test and this was unexpected. We think that probably it was just a passing contact when she was out at the grocery store is the best that we've been able to tell. But immediately we isolated her and and so Nobody else in the house got infected with COVID, and that was fantastic. But that was 10 days of stress that was happening. And longtime listeners will recall that also I was trying to finish a manuscript that I've been working on for a number of years. And so my wife got healthy. I turned in the manuscript to Yale, and I, in fact, got back uh, very positive comments on a different manuscript that's been working its way through Lexington Press, all in the space of like, you know, Sunday. She got out of quarantine Monday after, in the new year. I turned in my manuscript to Yale. And then Wednesday, I got the uh, the good feedback on Lexington Press. I began to relax. And as I relaxed, the Friday of that week, I began to have horrible pain in my back. So I thought, oh. I've thrown out my back, kind of what you were talking about. But what that developed into instead was a case of the shingles, which I'll be honest, I had never thought would be something that I would be dealing with. But I, I have now been in more than three weeks of this. And I just want to encourage anyone within the sound of my voice who is eligible. And I turned 51 during this time as well while we were away between seasons. And I should have gotten it when I turned 50, the vaccine for this illness. I didn't because of COVID. I wish that I had because I have had a couple of things in my life that are more painful than what I've been through in the last three weeks, but never with the duration and with the intensity that I have been in. So I just want to tell everyone, you don't want this. And so avoid it if you can. <laughs> but otherwise, I'm in great spirits. I'm very happy that these projects are moving forward. 
the person who wrote back on the uh, manuscript at Lexington, the peer reviewer, basically tore me a new one in the process of looking at the book, showed me all the things where my thinking was wrong and where it could be improved. And I actually found that to be fantastic. And I've got a whiteboard behind me that's full of how I'm going to revise the book. I couldn't be happier that somebody read me that closely and took the time to actually show me where I was wrong. It was a fantastic experience. And I'm very excited for 2022 because I can finally see these projects moving forward. So that's how I'm doing. Heidi, how are you? Well, if we're all going to share our health updates here, (laughs) (laughs) you'll be happy to know uh, I gave a big thumbs up to you, Dan, for getting back to yoga. I'm a longtime yoga practitioner. I have only had mostly a home practice since I've had kids because I don't have the luxury of being able to get out of the house for a couple hours for a full class at a studio. But Um, I really know that it's been helpful for me and kind of will tie in with some of my own practice of mindfulness when we talk about Thich Nhat Hanh later. And I'm way past 50, so yes, I did have my vaccination for the shingles, and I had heard scary stories about how painful it can be, so I, I was careful to get vaccinated. But I took a good two weeks off at the holidays, almost like I'm an academic or something, but I had some vacation coming and just wanted to do what you need to do to be better at your job, which is sometimes get away from it. So I have a very capable staff who was able to handle everything in my absence, but we too were hit with some positive for COVID in our family after we had traveled to see some extended family in Philadelphia. No one ever had a symptom in our family. And so if we hadn't been schlepping to these testing sites, which there were many of them in Chicago, but we were going to these pop-ups where you didn't always get your test results very in a timely way. And also there's a lot of questions now about whether those test results were even accurate. So I don't know, a couple of people in our family we think had COVID and that, that started that whole quarantine thing where we really couldn't do anything or go anywhere. And then one of our children was one of the positives. And so that child couldn't go back to school. But then no bother, because shortly after it was time for return to school, the Chicago public school system shut down over disagreements between the teachers union. And I have to say, once again, I was on the side of the union because it was so clear. Obviously, Omicron seems to be a little less severe, but it certainly was spreading like wildfire and they just didn't have enough teachers to staff the classroom. So our kids were home for, I think they were all in all away from school for almost a month. So uh, a lot of disruption here, a lot of family time, but I too am excited about 2022. We have a lot of exciting things happening at NCR. We just hired a new editor for Earthbeat, our climate justice publication. So Steph Clary, who I think you know, Dan, she said you were one of her former teachers. Yeah, former student at CTU. And I'd be remiss not to mention an alumna of St. Mary's College here at Notre Dame, where I'm on faculty. So yeah, Stephanie, welcome to to, to NCR. Yeah, so she started about uh, two weeks ago, and she's doing a great job already. We're excited to have her, and we're currently advertising another position. So any readers out there who are interested, we're hiring another staff reporter. So we're very excited about some of the expansion that we're doing, and just there's never a limit to the amount of news going on in our church and our world for us to cover. So I, I love the chance that we get to talk about those things here, too. 
I'm excited for NCR. Lots of great people joining the team. David, I want to I want to come back for a moment to Shingle. So I'm a bit behind on the uh, the age clock of my two co-hosts here, but I'm curious, did you ever have chicken pox as a kid? Cuz that's the same virus, right? It affects adults in the form of shingles, but it's the it's a dormant virus, right? So was that your experience? Did you have it as a kid and then it came back? Or did you never have it as a kid and this was a new infection? What was that like? When I was seven years old, I had a very mild case of the chicken pox. And so you have described it exactly like this has been dormant in my body, in my nerves and, and, and wherever it goes to hide for the better part of 40 plus years. And then basically not since graduate school have I been under the amount of stress that I was under with trying to make sure that everybody in my house stayed healthy and also trying to make sure that I was prepping for all my classes and trying to make sure that I got the book done by the time that I, you know, I was really committed to getting the book done, but it meant that I was putting in a lot of mental and physical effort because I was basically working eight hours a day on the book to, to get all the pieces in place and to get the revisions done that I wanted to get done. And I, the best that I can tell is that just at the tail of that, I collapsed fully. And in the collapse of that was when the virus decided this is the time to reemerge. And so I've had points where I've collapsed before, but I've never had the fallout be that kind of excruciating physical cost. But you've named it exactly. I had chicken pox when I was a kid and now I've got shingles and I'm going to get as soon as I can get the vaccine. I'm going to get the vaccine because I never want this to happen again. Yeah, again, sorry, but glad you're you're feeling better. So so happy to hear that. Hey, I've got a question in this. Speaking of recap, and and David, your point about the stress, I think all three of us can relate to that. Although maybe not Heidi with her two week vacation and skiing and yoga. So maybe <laughs> you're more relaxed than the rest of us. Maybe not. But one of the things I always love talking about, and our listeners, I think sometimes like hearing us talk about, is what we're watching. So in the spirit of stress, maybe to to wrap up our recap uh, segment, anything over the last five weeks that uh, people have taken up, movies, TV shows, limited series that are helping fight that stress? Well, first of all, this idea that I'm an unstressed person, my family <laughs> and uh, colleagues will be very surprised to hear that description. By the way, I'm a, a parent of two teenagers, so my life is plenty stressful. But And you have the shingles uh, shot, so you've got that yeah, going for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we did some, We had, all those days we were stuck at home, we did some catching up on movie watching. So you'll be glad to hear I finally finished season two of Ted Lasso, finally. And so I saw some of the religious and spiritual themes that you might have been hinting about in that show. My husband and I watched Don't Look Up, that movie that was like a farce, but also serious about the issue of some, something hurtling towards Earth that was going to you know, end civilization as we know it. It was both a metaphor for global warming, but it felt like a pandemic uh, theme as well. And I watched, with my daughter, we watched Cruella, which was a Disney show about the backstory of sort of this mean character or whatever. But it was really interesting. And my daughter really loved uh, the fashion scenes in it. So those were the highlights of my TV viewing. What about you guys? So my family and I have continued our rewatch of The Office, or rather it's my wife and I rewatching and our kids are watching it for the first time. My daughter, who is 12, my son, who is 10. And it's a show that holds up. And so it's been delightful to share that with our kids because we've really just enjoyed it through the years. It's been a touchstone for Kira and I. 
The other show that my wife and I really got into and were surprised by was a show on HBO called Station Eleven. And it's a sort of compact miniseries. I'm not sure that there'll ever be another season of it, but it was the most beautifully realized piece of extended art I've encountered in a long time. And listeners who uh, ever watched that film with Amy Adams called Arrival, it hit me in the same emotional space that Arrival hit me in. Very similar atmospherics. It's science fiction, but it's more about the relationships and more about the emotions. Just a beautiful piece of work. And it it lingered with me for days after we finished watching it. And I'm looking forward to going back and watching it again. It's a really good piece of work. But those are the two main things that we've been watching over the break. Yeah. Like Heidi, first of all, Station Eleven is on my radar. So I'm, I'm glad to hear the endorsement. It'll, it'll, it, the other thing that's on my radar is uh, the tragedy of Macbeth that Apple TV produced it's a Joel Cohen movie. I didn't realize until I was thinking about watching it the other day, but I was too tired. It was too late in the day to focus on Shakespeare. I did watch a little bit of a behind the scenes of the making because it is like you were saying, David, with Station Eleven. It's just cinematography wise, absolutely astounding. It's all in black and white, very harsh geometric shapes, stars Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. So if that isn't enough for you doing Shakespeare with Joel Cohen as the director, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, it's on my list along with Station Eleven. Listeners know I'm a big Star Wars nerd. I love Star Wars. And so I've been thrilled as my uh, brothers and I have uh, been watching. They live in New York State. I live here in Indiana. So we're texting a lot about the Book of Boba Fett, which is the latest installment by the I'm convinced absolute Star Wars genius of Jon Favreau. This guy is extraordinary. And I just last night watched uh, episode five um, or installment five in in the book of Boba Fett. I don't want to give any spoilers, but I nearly passed out. It was so exciting. (laughs) So I'll just leave it at that. If people are Star Wars fans and you watch that, I also saw Don't Look Up right after it came out, which must have been like the week after Christmas. And immediately saw everybody tanking it and these like critical reviews that were not constructive. And I completely disagreed. I thought it was a fantastic movie, well acted. I appreciated the self-awareness of the allegory. And how can you go wrong with that cast? Meryl Streep is the president, for heaven's sake. It was fantastic. So I also watched the new Ghostbusters movie. You can rent that on streaming now. It was in the theaters starring Paul Rudd and a bunch of young actors. I don't want to give any spoilers. Unlike the the remake where you had the four women playing the Ghostbusters just a few years back, which itself was very good, but a very different sort of thing. This is going back to the original story and continuing the story into a new generation. So I really enjoyed that. It also features, it shifts not unlike the Star Wars universe that shifts to the main character. Ray in the the sequel trilogy, the, the new Ghostbusters shifts to a young girl as the lead character moving forward. So I really appreciate what they're doing there with the narrative and expanding that um, with. Yeah, I won't say anything more, but I really enjoyed it. If you enjoy that, check it out. Two other things I'll say. I read a book over the holiday that was a Christmas gift called The Anomaly. It's a French novel that was translated into English. I could not put it down. It is so absolutely good. I highly recommend it. I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And then I think listeners will appreciate this and probably say, where have you been all these years? But I've just started, David, like you said, rewatching The Office. I've seen The Office probably a hundred times all the way through. One show that has received similar comedic critical acclaim that I have not seen all the way through just episodes here and there is 30 Rock. And I started that from scratch recently and I can't get enough of it. It's so good. Tina Fey is a genius. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. 
Isn't it so fun that we have this opportunity now to go back and just watch shows from the beginning? I'm in the middle of doing it with Mary Tyler Moore because of the death of Betty White made me think of going back and watching some of those. And I'm just, I love some of the, seeing these shows from my youth or from, from even before then has, is so fun to watch the whole thing. I just want to say for those of you who did like Don't Look Up, make sure you check out the review at NCR because we got a positive review there that I think looks at some Christian themes in the movie. So I forgot to mention books. I did more reading than TV watching. I finally read the novel Cutting for Stone, which I don't know if I can even pronounce the author's name. He's an Indian uh, who grew up in, in uh, Ethiopia. I think it's the best novel I've ever read, and I've got all these friends of mine now reading it, so highly recommended. But a story that we reported recently involved the Institute for Pastoral Studies and Loyola. So I, you haven't mentioned it yet, David, but are you excited about this event that Pope Francis himself is going to be part of? Yeah, so for listeners, I want to put this on your radar. February 24th, noon central time, is an event that's happening virtually with Pope Francis, and it's co-hosted by the Institute for Pastoral Studies, the Hank Center for Catholic Intellectual Heritage, and the Department of Theology, all at Loyola University. And it's an opportunity for university students, not just at Loyola, but across the Americas, to interact with Pope Francis. And I don't know all the details about how this got put together, but as our dean has been talking about it, there's a lot of kind of wheels within wheels, people talking to people. And as as this kind of became more of a possibility, more people got involved and more people got excited. If you want to find out more about it, you can go to luc.edu slash Pope Francis. And so that's the, the Loyola University Chicago website, luc.edu, with a focus on Pope Francis, and it brings you to this event, which is called Building Bridges. And so, again, that's going to be happening on February 24th. I'm very excited about it. I I have no idea how it's going to go or what all is going to be involved, but just from the glimpse that I've gotten from it, from the information so far, I'm incredibly excited about it. And NCR has the story about how it all came about. It's a it's a funny story, but it's also a great opportunity. It's going to be really cool, I think, to see the Pope interacting in real time with college students from North, South, and Central America. So maybe they'll talk about trans rights and issues because that's an issue for your Catholics and younger people. And that's what we're going to talk about in our next segment. Absolutely. So we'll go ahead and, and we'll bring this to a close. I'll put some information about the Building Bridges event in the show notes for this episode. But for now, we'll go ahead and uh, leave our recap and get on into the rest of the program. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. the Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. According to reporting from CNN and other news outlets, 2021 was a record-breaking year for legislation targeting transgender persons across the country. In all, 33 states introduced more than 100 bills affecting aspects of life for transgender persons, ranging from participation in sporting events to access to health care. In January of this year, the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, Wisconsin's largest city, 
issued a sweeping new policy aimed at persons who do not identify with their biological sex. The new policy stipulated that parishes, schools, and other Catholic organizations must require people to use bathrooms associated with their birth gender, and went on to prohibit the use of names, preferred pronouns, and even doctor-prescribed medications at Catholic schools and other institutions run by the archdiocese. New Ways Ministry, an organization that has long advocated for the safety and rights of LGBTQ Catholics within the church, issued a statement claiming that the Milwaukee guidelines, quote, ignore the enormous amount of scientific and social scientific research showing that supporting people through gender transition promotes well-being and flourishing, and that the policies will certainly lead to emotional and mental problems, forms of self-harm, and lives of confusion, pain, and sorrow, unquote. David, we've spoken about these issues on the show before, but I'm wondering what you're thinking about these recent events in Milwaukee and the wave of legislation over the past year aimed at transgender people. Well, let me start by saying first what I like about the Milwaukee policies that have just been issued. There's an organization that I follow called Church Clarity, and I commend that to all of our listeners. It tries to track the different ways that religious organizations have clear policies about LGBTQ plus persons within their communities. And one of the things that Church Clarity says is that oftentimes organizations will hide in ambiguity and they will have bigoted policies, but they will not state them plainly on their websites and on other public information. And so people who are LGBTQ plus or who are allies to LGBTQ plus will get involved in these organizations and these communities only to find out later that the organizations are bigoted. And so what I like about the Milwaukee Archdiocese is that it has told us in no uncertain terms that they are bigoted against transgender persons and that they are willing to put that policy on paper so that all can see it. So that's what I like about the policy. That being said, this is a bigoted policy. It is a policy that turns its back on the vulnerable and those that are in need of care and in need of hospitality and support. And so I am angry and maybe listeners can hear it in my voice, I'm angry that here in 2022, we as a church are still finding church leaders that are willing to say, you do not have the right to exist in our diocese. And I think that's abhorrent. And I just want to go on record and say that I'm, as we say down in Tennessee, I'm again it. So that's where I am. So I like the fact that they're clear. I don't like the fact that the clarity that they've given us is a clarity that, that points towards bigotry, exclusion, and even to say that trans people do not have the right to exist in that diocese. That's pretty much what the policy is saying. But I'm curious what you all think. I'm with you 100%. I have to say, you had me guessing there, David, at the beginning when you said what you liked about the policy. I was waiting for this, and I have to say, bravo, well well said. It's nice when you're dealing with hateful people. It's good when they're just honest about it. So, you know, I was going to use some other examples. We don't need to. That I think your point was well, well put. Yeah, I also echo your frustration, your anger. Readers of my comment NCR will not be surprised in about where I stand on this. I've written a lot about transgender rights, identity, about the theology and the misunderstanding of theology that undergirds this bigoted, discriminatory behavior. And we've seen it uh, in places like San Francisco in the Archdiocese. We've seen it in places like the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia. We've seen it now in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. And the only word to describe 
all this is disgusting. I think history is going to be very clear about how wrongheaded, how sinful these sorts of practices are, these practices of discrimination. And David, I agree with you 100%. From a theological and philosophical perspective, what's going on here is erasure. It's denying the reality and the reality that's experienced by people who are different than those who are drafting these discriminatory policies. I tweeted about this statement and when I shared NCR's story about it, and I'm I have no interest in tiptoeing around the truth here. That's why I appreciate your kind of interesting lead into the transparency point, because what we see is plain, but it's unacceptable. And what what will happen at times is you have folks, whether church leaders or staff members or people who are uh, transphobic or homophobic more broadly or or, or want to espouse any of these sorts of problematic and sinful perspectives, they'll point to things like Pope Francis's, I would say, inept phraseology like gender ideology, which is, as I've written about both in NCR and as other scholars, including professor of law at the University of Chicago and a very thoughtful, very well-researched scholarly article points out, is a complete nonsensical term. Gender ideology ideology is not a real thing. It doesn't make any sense. But it's a boogeyman that's being used to discriminate against people who don't fit certain norms of cisgender, limited kind of worldviews. A little bit of a self-referential statement here, but in my book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, I, I demonstrate that there are resources in the Catholic tradition that give us a sound Catholic Christian philosophically consistent theological anthropology that completely sustains the and supports the existence of transgender persons. It's a self-selecting, narrow perspective that draws from an Aristotelian teleology and a kind of way of reading Thomas Aquinas that is most often used to justify this kind of discrimination. It needs to end because there are other ways legitimately Catholic and Christian and theologically sound ways that we need to understand the human person in light of psychological, sociological, medical research and knowledge. To me, it seems antithetical to human reason and to human thought and, and the gift that the gifts that God has given us to do this sort of research and come to greater knowledge of the world and of ourselves to pretend that we all still live in the 13th century. So that's about, I don't know that I can say anything more because I've said a lot about this in, in my writing and in other conversations. And I think listeners can hear my frustration and anger. I stand with my transgender siblings. I think the Archbishop of Milwaukee and those who drafted this statement and those who seek to promote it are incredibly wrong, and and history will recall that. And I don't think anyone should support them. So I agree with both of you as well and also was a little confused in the beginning there, David, but you're right. This is nothing if not clear. I was really grateful that in his report about it, uh, the NCR uh, reporter Brian Fraga went back and interviewed a priest, Father Greg Greiton, who I had covered a couple of years ago when I was national correspondent, who came out as a celibate gay priest to his congregation and publicly with, with the knowledge of his bishop. But he expressed real concerns about the damage that a policy of like, that this can do, especially the young people who are already going through something that could be confusing or difficult for them. So he was concerned. He said, I'm My greatest fear is that we're going to traumatize sexually yet another generation of kids. Part of the policy says that anyone who's experiencing these issues should be directed to, they call it ministers or counselors who can provide support 
in accord with directives and teachings of the church. And I do think, like you, Dan, that there's a lot in our church teaching that could be helpful to people like this. But too often what I think this means is to people who are going to further shame and make people feel bad about how God created them. And over the past couple months, I've been working with this mother who wrote an essay that ran in NCR. The mom's name is uh, Joyce Calvo, about her daughter, Alana Chen, who realized in her teenage years that she was a lesbian. She was very religious. And she unfortunately got in the hands of priests and nuns and other folks in the Archdiocese of Denver who tried to convince her that being a lesbian uh, was a sin and that she needed to change. And Sadly, she ended up dying uh, by suicide. And her mom now is really trying to get the word out there about how damaging these kinds of policies and ways of thinking can be. This is literally a matter of life and death. And parents need to be aware if they're going to the church, and they should be able to go to the church for help with things like this, but they should need to be very cautious about the kind of church people they're talking to because it could be really putting their kids in danger. One of the things that I say to my students at the Institute of Pastoral Studies when I'm working with them is the most pastorally indefensible thing that you can do when someone comes to you and tells you their truth is to look them in the eye and say, your story is actually not correct. Let me tell you what your story really is and to re-narrate that story for them. And at a time, especially when the church itself is turning towards the synod on synodality, which is all about listening, what I fear when I see church leaders like this bishop doing this is my fear is that we're going to see another version of this kind of indefensibly kind of pastoral counter move of saying, okay, I listened, but now let me tell you what you said, and here's what what you said means. I, I think that is what's happening here. No one actually stopped to listen to the experience of LGBTQ, particularly transgender persons. They simply said, oh, we know what the reality is, and now we're going to tell you what your reality is. And again, it's what I call the erasure of their existence. It's an indefensible act pastorally because it starts by saying, I know you better than you do. And I don't think that any of us can say that to another person. Yeah, you're both saying such important stuff. I, I'm going to circle back to something you said, Heidi, and, and passing about the life or death issues in the tragedy of what happened to that young woman um, as illustrative of the dangers. And, and I can't help, you know, it's the same offices, typically, the same offices at the diocesan chancery level. It's oftentimes the same church leaders who put out these kinds of statements and policies and fire grade and element and, and high school teachers and parish staff and stuff that are LGBTQ plus. And these same people dare to show up in Washington, D.C. in January and, and march for life, quote unquote. It is hypocritical. It is antithetical to Christian teaching, to the Catholic Church, to claim to be for life and yet to promote such anti-life policies as these transphobic and homophobic and discriminatory policies and statements. It is sickening to think about this. I, I don't think Archbishop Listicki can claim to be pro-life in support statement. I'm just going to be very bold and, and, and direct about that. And that goes for anybody else, because the consequences of this are it's a remote co cooperation with death is what's going on here. It's a culture of death. The second thing I would say is back to your point, David, about synodality. I think that's a really important point. And sadly, I'm not surprised to see that some of these conversations, these transphobic sort of statements and whatnot and policies in the U.S. are happening at a time where a lot of 
prelates are, are not interested in participating in the church's tradition of synodality, of walking together, of listening. It's the same sort of group of church leaders and others who are they, they used to accuse other people of being cafeteria Catholics, picking and choosing what they like. Well, they're cafeteria papal ad- adherents. You know, which popes and on what days are they interested in listening to magisterial teaching and to and to be in communion with Rome? So as David and I have talked about in ages past, now we are in, in our double-digit season here, that you literally cannot be Catholic if you're not in communion with Rome. So these folks, including sometimes church leaders who are distancing themselves from the Holy Father and from magisterial teaching, whether it's on climate change whether it's on inclusion. The statement from the Archdiocese of Milwaukee came out within 24 hours of Pope Francis giving an address talking about parents should not discriminate or shame their LGBTQ children. So there is such dissonance here across pastoral leadership, and it causes scandal. Forget about pro-choice politicians receiving communion. To me, this is what causes scandal. And you know who's watching? Generation Z. These young people are watching, and they're not going to have any of it. And I think going back to synodality and the way, listening to how the Holy Spirit's speaking through all of the body of Christ, all the baptized, I think the Spirit is speaking directly to young adults, and they, in a way that the older generation that wants to maintain a status quo that includes these discriminatory practices very often, they can't hear the quiet voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to the hearts of the people of God. And so I'm with the Holy Father. I'm with those who are promoting synodality. But I I see statements like this and I think, well, the Archdiocese of Milwaukee is not interested in listening to people's experiences. Yeah. Thank you for pointing out that recent comment that the Pope made. And I, too, have heard from a number of clergy who are either saying privately or want to write for NCR publicly about how they disagree with the, the Milwaukee Archdiocese policy and who believe in the process and trust the process and believe in the sacredness of the process of listening to people who are different from them. I think this is going to be an issue that is going to continue to fan the flames of the culture wars. And it both saddens me that we have both sides in our church right now. But just know that the there there are people in the church, including the three of us on this podcast, who support LGBTQ folks. And, um, and hopefully we're going to try to get their voices out there too. You know, and I just want to add before we wrap up here that I know we have listeners who are trans and we have family members of trans siblings who are regular listeners. We are with you. We support you. We see you. We believe you. And know that just because certain church leaders make statements like this, certain church organizations or organizations affiliated with the church support these discriminatory policies does not mean that God supports them. So keep that in mind and know that you're in our prayers. Well, I'm sad to say that this will not be the last time that we address these kinds of issues here on The Francis Effect. But for right now, this is probably where we need to leave this conversation. We're in prayer for those that feel vulnerable or attacked by the church right now. We have been, we will continue to be, and we ask our listeners to stay in prayer as well. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. 
Last month, Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh died at the Buddhist temple Hue in Vietnam, where he had begun monastic life at the age of 16. He had returned to the temple in 2019 to prepare for his death after suffering a stroke five years earlier. Nhat Hanh was 95 when he died. It is said that Nhat Hanh, who was known as Thai to his followers, is said to have been the second most famous Buddhist in the contemporary world after His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Nhat Hanh popularized mindfulness in the West, and his vast peace writings introduced countless people to Buddhist ideas and practices. He is considered the father of, quote, engaged Buddhism, which is a movement that links mindfulness practice with social action. Nhat Hanh has been forced into exile from Vietnam beginning in the 1960s for his peace activism. He lived and taught overseas for more than five decades, founding eight monasteries in Plum Village, France, and throughout the world, including three in the United States. In 1966, he came to the United States at the invitation of peace activists and met with both Martin Luther King Jr. and the Trappist monk Thomas Merton. Martin Luther King Jr. would later nominate Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. Nhat Hanh published more than 100 books in English, exposing the West to new Eastern meditation practices. Among his most popular books have been The Miracle of Mindfulness, Living Buddha, Living Christ, Being Peace, and Peace is Every Breath. Oprah Winfrey, in a 2013 interview with Nhat Hanh, confessed that she kept a copy of Living Buddha, Living Christ at her bedside. Heidi, you had the chance to see and personally interview Thich Nhat Hanh several years ago when he was in Chicago. Why is his witness as a spiritual leader important to Catholics? Well, I know that his witness was very important to me and so many other Catholics and Christians I know. When I was a college teacher, my students used to sometimes ask me who was the most famous person I'd ever interviewed, and I would say Thich Nhat Hanh. And to the Gen Zers, they were not that impressed because they were hoping for some sort of famous entertainer or something. But I remember this was in 2003. He came to Loyola University to speak. It was around the time of the publication of his book called Creating True Peace. So 2003, this was shortly after 9-11. The whole war on terror was happening. And he was talking about the importance of mindfulness and spiritual practices in creating peace like among ourselves and in our families and in our workplaces, and that we really had to start at this like basic level before we worried about dealing with peace in the world. And I didn't have a family yet then, but it turns out that a lot of the practices that I learned about breathing and counting your breaths on the inhale and the exhale and trying to live in the moment, with uh, be very mindful of things that you were doing, whether it was washing the dishes or eating an orange, those were really helpful to me later as a parent when I was trying to work with my kids, especially when they were having meltdowns or something like that. We have a nice obituary and reflection from publisher emeritus Tom Fox, who spent a lot of time in, he went there during the war, not as a soldier, but as a doing service there. And he had all Thich Nhat Hanh several times. And I was curious because he was told the same thing that the Thich Nhat Hanh told me, which is that there's no need for Christians to become Buddhists. And I believe the Dalai Lama also says the same thing, that we all have our own spiritual traditions, but the practice of mindfulness is a non-sectarian thing. This is not just a practice that Buddhists do or that Hindus do in yoga. And having been involved in some centering prayer groups in the past, I know that's a, a Christian-specific practice of mindfulness, too. So 
I was very sad when I learned that he died. He obviously lived a lot longer, I think, than people thought he would after that serious health event five years ago. When we were in Vietnam two years ago, my, my son was born in Vietnam. We went back on a trip. We were able to go to the monastery in Hue. It was part of our tour. And we were. I was so like excited that we might have a chance to see him. But he was, I think, in Da Nang and was not there that day. But it was still very awesome to be on those grounds. And then this past week, as I've watched some of the ceremonies that are available, you can watch them on YouTube to see that monastery there. It feels like kind of a personal connection for me. I know that he had this relationship with Thomas Merton, too. I think, Dan, you're a little bit more aware of that. Yeah. So that's how I first came to know about Thich Nhat Hanh was through his friendship and relationship with Thomas Merton. As we mentioned in, in the beginning of the segment, they did meet in 1966, so two years before Merton's death. And in 1968, Merton wrote a, a short essay that's pretty famous in Merton circles called Nhat Hanh is My Brother. And it was a short essay that Merton wrote in solidarity to help Christian women and men, particularly in the United States, recognize their solidarity with the people of Vietnam during the Vietnam War and the need for peace, the need for the to, to promote nonviolence, the need for Christian peace activists to work together to help draw attention to the atrocities that were taking place in, in Vietnam. And if it's okay, I'd like to share, today happens to be Merton's 107th birthday as we're recording this. So for listeners, that's January 31st. And I think it's appropriate given that and the topic at hand, just to read the closing paragraph of that essay, Not Han is My Brother, written by Thomas Merton in 1968. Merton writes, I have said Not Han is my brother, and it is true. We are both monks, and we have lived the monastic life about the same number of years. We are both poets, both existentialists. I have far more in common with Nat Han than I have with many Americans, and I do not hesitate to say it. It is vitally important that such bonds be admitted. They are the bonds of a new solidarity and a new brotherhood, which is beginning to be evident on all five continents, and which cuts across all political, religious, and cultural lines to unite young men and women in every country in something that is more concrete than an ideal and more alive than a program. This unity of the young is the only hope of the world. In its name, I appeal for Nathan. Do what you can for him. If I mean something to you, then let me put it this way. Do for Nathan whatever you would do for me if I were in his position. In many ways, I wish I were. Wow. That's so powerful. So I don't have the connection to Thich Nhat Hanh that both of you are describing, either in a scholarly way or in a personal way. But I have been adjacent to people who have been affected by Thich Nhat Hanh very deeply, and some of those things have rubbed off on me. In particular, and I, I'm going to get this wrong, I don't know the exact reference, but Thich Nhat Hanh talked about consuming anger and the way in which we relate to the food that we eat. And there's a phrase that I don't know if it's a direct quotation, but the phrase that has stuck with me is the idea of angry meat. The idea that if the meat that we consume is made from animals that have been mistreated or that have, been, that have died in horrible ways, that in some ways these things pass to us. Now, I always read that through the lens of another very important spiritual figure for me, the Quaker John Woolman, thinking very mindfully about how we interact with the things that we consume, whether we're talking about our clothing or whether we're talking about the food that we eat. 
And so for me, I have tried through the years to practice mindfulness as I'm eating. And something that I have also heard attributed to Thich Nhat Hanh is as I'm chewing my food, I try and give thanks for the people that provided it for me. I try and give thanks for the animals and the plants that that brought it to me. And I'm not saying this in any kind of woo-woo way, but just to be mindful of the fact that I didn't make these things. These things were brought to me and brought to market and brought to my table through forces that are out of my control, but I can be grateful for them and I can also be praying as I'm interacting with them that every step of the process, there's both humility and humanity in that process. And so these are the ways in which I have brought forward the thinking, at least the adjacent thinking of Thich Nhat Hanh into my own life. Yeah, for people who want to maybe get started with his work, I would definitely recommend The Miracle of Mindfulness. It's a very short, simple book and has some kind of explanation of how to do the simplest mindfulness practices. For example, just practicing matching the length of your inhale to the length of your exhale um, and counting, starting with lower numbers and getting up to higher numbers. There's also, he talks a lot about the practice of walking meditation. When I'm out doing my walks, I'm always listening to podcasts or talking to people, but I do also appreciate the time using walking as a mindfulness practice and paying attention to your steps and to the world around you. In fact, I believe that he said before he died that he wanted his ashes to be spread on the paths at Plum Village and the other monasteries so that people could be with him in their walking meditation. So he's also been, I think, a real model of someone approaching death in a very mindful way. He has been quite ill or incapacitated since the stroke in many ways, but has been very present to, was very present to the life that he still had and trying to see death as a transition and approaching it with no fear. I know for our family, it's been an interesting practice to just observe the Buddhist practices after the death of a master teacher like this. Um, A lot of chanting, a lot of time in meditation, but also some very dramatic processions with the body and flowers and that kind of stuff. So it's been a good interreligious experience as well. So I want to pick up on this and and ask you, Dan, because I'm sensing that probably some of our listeners may have a, a kind of resistance to what we're saying here and the ways in which we're just lauding the life and the witness of this particular individual. They may have read in their Bibles, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they might say, well, why are we talking so fully and with such hospitality towards someone who obviously didn't accept Christ in the way that Catholics do? What's the deal here? You've begun to gesture in that direction with your quotations from that essay by Thomas Merton, Not Han is My Brother, but I'd love to hear more about how we can think about people who are not Christian as spiritual exemplars and as brothers and sisters in faith and in our walk of faith. I think one of the things that is important to remember that the Catholic Church teaches that there is nothing that is true and good in other religious traditions and cultures that the Catholic Church rejects. That comes right out of Nostra Aetate and the decree on religious liberty at the Second Vatican Council. And of course, an ecumenical council is the highest form of church teaching. So this is what we believe. Now, what you signal, David, is is exactly right. There are some people who, whether out of ignorance, right, they they just don't know better or they, they assume that anything that isn't explicitly branded as Christian or Catholic more specifically is somehow against our tradition. And that, that's just simply not true. One only has to go back to the to the 
canonical gospels and look at how Jesus broke taboos of religious superiority uh, and and exclusivity. And so a lot of Jesus's healing experiences, a lot of Jesus's encounters with others and calling to discipleship, calling to be practitioners and members of the inbreaking of God's reign, were people who were Samaritans and Gentiles and those who were outside of his own religious community as a person who was a Jew. So I think if God incarnate can model for us an interreligious and inclusive sense of uh, spirituality, of relationship, of solidarity, then who are we to say that any one of us or any one of our religious traditions has all the answers and is completely self-sufficient? Roman Catholicism is not. Uh, No religious tradition is not because God exists and draws near to all people. And there's nothing, again, I, I cite the council, that is true and good in other traditions or cultures that the Catholic Church rejects. What that means, as I understand it, is that we have a lot to learn from our sisters and brothers and other traditions and cultures and experiences. And I think in some ways this carries on from our last segment where we were talking about gender identity, but here we talk about religious identity. And I think, you know, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, what, what Thomas Merton saw in him, what I think if I hear Heidi's experience as a contemporary Catholic Christian sees in him and so many others who are drawn to these practices they strengthen one's Catholic and Christian identity rather than detract from it or weaken it. And I think that's where, again, we can learn. Just like we can learn from secular insights and wisdom, we can learn from other religious and philosophical traditions, cultures, and ideas. And I would just add that his emphasis throughout his life on preaching against war and on peacemaking is something, this idea of engaged Buddhism. We need everyone in the world Christian, Buddhist, no matter what your religious tradition is, or even if you don't have a religious tradition, to be engaged in this process of trying to move us towards a more peaceful world. So to the extent Christians and Buddhists can find that common ground and be working on that together, then that's only a positive thing that I'm sure God is very happy about. Well, we're grateful for the life and the witness of Thich Nhat Hanh. We're grateful for the ways in which he interacted with and inspired some of the people that we see as touchstones in the Catholic Church. I think that it's appropriate to say that we pray for his repose as he passes from this piece of reality into the next piece of reality, and that we can continue to lift up what he meant for—it's clear that he meant a great deal to the two of you and to others as well within our faith. So I think that we have a great deal to be thankful for in the life and witness of Thich Nhat Hanh. And as listeners are coming with us on this journey and in this conversation, I hope that you will find uh, occasion to go into some of the right that have been mentioned here and others, and to deepen your own spiritual walk. And, and I just want to say, in my own spiritual walk, Father Dan, Heidi, I'm so grateful for the two of you and for your life and witness. So I'm so thankful to be back with you for season 10. I think that this has been a great kickoff, and I'm looking forward to the conversations in the weeks to come. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, David. Thank you, Heidi. Yes, thanks. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Listeners, we'll be back with you soon. Thank you for listening to The Francis Effect and for being with us today. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's 
edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout-out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.